And it is such a, it's such a humbling privilege to have the opportunity to stand up here and take 30 minutes of your time or 40 or 50 or, I'm, I'm just kidding with you. It is good to be here. I'm Dr. Bob Ingram, one of the staff here at Central Community Church. And uh, wow, what a time of worship this morning. I uh, grew up in churches and uh, have been in multiple churches through my 66 years of life. And I just want to make a point this morning to say that in so many of those churches, I have heard preachers talk about what happens before the sermon, kind of like getting crackers at a restaurant before the meal. You know, sometimes you eat them, sometimes you don't. I just want to say to you that I don't believe that's theologically correct at all, that what happens prior to the message, which I don't want to minimize what I'm going to share with you today, but in that worship time is God's Word, our principles, our doctrines, especially this morning. My hope is built on nothing less. And uh, it just hit me this morning during first worship. It's my opinion, but I believe that when we're in heaven, I don't think there's going to be a need for preaching. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? But you know what is going to happen? What you just experienced this morning, right? Just wanted to make that point. I'm glad you're here. Let's pray. Father, teach us by your Spirit. We sang a lot of songs this morning that implicated the coming of Jesus. And we would love for you to come before this prayer ends. But so far you haven't. And so you have called us specifically to be your disciples, to be your followers, to be your leaders. And so teach us this morning about leadership. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Bible is full of examples of men and women from prophet to priest to king to simple citizens who took seriously the call to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus in their lives. And history, as we know, despite sufficient examples of Christians who have fallen into error, is also full of faithful disciples who humbly walked in God's ways and who held tremendous influence in history. Today our focus is going to turn just for one week to the art and the heart of leadership. We're in trouble, folks, from our top leaders in our country all the way down to families. We're in trouble where it regards leadership. Leadership is an indispensable concept for every one of us. There really is no perfect definition of leadership. There are theories of leadership. There are multiple components of leadership. Most leadership definitions lean toward having influence with a group, but one person can also be a leader of another person. Someone recently spoke to me about leadership and wondered if there wasn't a better word that we could start using because so many people do not resonate with the idea that they might be a leader or that they fulfill the true definition, if there is such a one, of leader. 
So let me suggest this, anyone who leads in any capacity automatically becomes a person of influence. If you are influencing to some degree, you are leading like water and fire and air. Think of those elements. Given the circumstances, leadership always is having a positive or a negative effect. Almost every one of you sitting here today, in truth, is influencing at least someone else in your life. And in essence, you're unofficially a leader. We'll leave it at that. But because of this, stay with me because you are actually forming your legacy right now by the influence that you're having right now in your life. So this message will influence you to some level in how you continue to lead and how you and I are indirectly or directly led by others from the White House to the HOA to our local city leaders and the influence you exert all the way down to your most cherished relationships. Just by example, if you stop and and you attempt to to, to interfere with what you perceive in front of you is an unjust or an unfair encounter between two persons. Even then, you have just assumed a level of leadership. Leadership is a broad term. In some cases, one becomes a leader without any official invitation to lead anything. In almost every case, our life of leadership begins for all of us right in our homes. Every mother and father becomes a leader of his or her children. You assumed that role when you chose to conceive a child. Every older brother or sister is at times a leader of a younger sibling. Sometimes it's the other way around when the younger leads the older. They didn't even choose that role. Sometimes it's mere survival that forces one to lead. We would agree on two things. I think if nothing more regarding leadership, good leadership matters. Poor leadership can create messes and can really hurt people. Now other people are in leadership because they were invited to consider committing to a list of responsibilities, a job description like many of you have. May not involve compensation beyond the realm of the ultimate reward of serving the Lord as one of his children. In any case, it's almost always untrue for any person to say, I am not a leader of anything. A child with a pet has begun to experience leadership to some degree. One of our children had a pet in his bedroom when he was about five or six years old. He paid such little attention to that pet or caring for that pet that it was about a week after we had removed the animal from his pen, from its pen, and we asked our boy one night to bring the critter downstairs so he could run around the living room. Well, he came thrashing in a panic downstairs to tell us that his pet had escaped his pen. There was no leadership going on in that boy's bedroom. (laughs) Well, there's too much that we could say on this topic. We could talk about the challenges of being a leader 
over people in any setting or the changes that any leader must navigate and the battle that leaders fight with those who just want everything to stay the same. The same people who might also say, oh, we love making changes. You might say you do. If it regards trying a new restaurant or a new color of paint in your living room, for most of us, only certain changes in life are exciting. We generally like things to stay as they are, and in many cases, whether they are even healthy or not for us, I am sad to report we will often choose the familiar over the best if it would require major change. Is that not true? Where are you sitting today? Where did you sit last week? Where is your car parked today at the Central Community parking lot? And by the way, where did you park it last week? With our near future refresh thrust that's going to happen over the next few years here at Central Community Church, there will be changes you might begin to prepare even now to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is to know Christ. And then it is the mission of Jesus to every Christ follower, and that is to make Him known. An old man spent a lot of time on his front porch every day rocking away the day. His big old hog dog lay next to him in the same spot in day in and day out, but the old dog had a periodic whimper as he lay there every day on that same spot, on that same porch, in that same place. He didn't like change either. One day the old dog got up and the old man noticed there was a nail head sticking out just where his dog laid. He figured that might be why every time his dog moved around, he would, he would whimper and he would whine a little bit. The old man got his hammer the, one day and he knocked that nail back into the wood and the dog laid there quiet from that day on. The moral of the story, some of us would rather lay on those familiar nail heads and we'd like to whimper and whine than to make a change. Leadership will inevitably bring change. And with change, people will whimper and whine on either side of that change for a variety of reasons. There's a classic story today. You've already seen the preview on the screen found in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's around 445 B.C., so keep that in mind date-wise. About 2,500 years ago, after Jerusalem had been destroyed in battle in 586 B.C., the temple itself was rebuilt and completed around 516 B.C., about 70 years later. Our lead actor is Nehemiah. He is a man who loved God and who loved people. Now, having heard, heard reports, because he had no social media, so several years later, hearing reports that the walls around the sacred city had been broken down, he uh, attempted to secure permission from his king in Persia, where he had been exiled with his people. 
to return to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding and securing this wall. A rebuilt wall around the temple meant that worship could again be restored. The temple would be safe from harm and the beauty of God's holiness and his designated earthly presence at that point in history would once again be as it should be. We won't cover the whole book this morning, but you would see the actual restoring of the physical wall was deeply tied to the restoring of their intimacy with God. Thank you for asking. We're, we're speaking about a wall here, securing the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is not the wall that we're used to seeing on the news. You know that wall? This wall in Nehemiah measured, just so you know, about eight feet thick. That's about any, that's about the width of this top step here at the stage, about eight feet thick. The length of the wall that ran around the city of Jerusalem would be the distance from where you're sitting today, two and a half miles to the west on Mays Road. Just for your perspective, that's how long this wall was, and the wall was about 40 feet high. That's the height. I measured it this week. I did. As a ceiling. That's the wall. God calls the temple in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 9, the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is the one place in all the earth. Let's get that in mind. This place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. I once heard it said like this, the whole wide world and the universe beyond is God's masterpiece painting. But it is here in his holy place in tiny Jerusalem where he signed his name to the canvas. And ultimately, one would pinpoint that signature on a hill named Calvary and an empty tomb close by. This story is just loaded with little life lessons that I'll add in for free today as we work through the first part of this book. By the way, it's only six chapters, so just be patient. Don't worry. Soon after chapter six, you can read the rest later today. You can read later how they proceeded to then hear the Word of God, to confess their sins, and to return to their dependence upon God. A secure wall at this point in history mattered greatly hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So with that in mind, you've already probably missed the first little lesson I did as I started reading and rushing through this. Seventy years, close to the average length of a lifetime, the city walls remained in ruins after the temple was rebuilt. Actually, it's really 140 years since the temple was destroyed, the place where God is present on earth by his own decree and for close to the average length of a lifetime, God does not rush in to fix a major problem. 
Do you? With a family issue, a friend, a work-related problem, do you first stop and observe and ask God what you should do? Or does your anxiety and, and our American nutty, neurotic need for fixing and controlling things and people enslave you to doing what God may want you to do in another way or at a different pace? I'll leave it at that for each of us to consider as we exercise leadership and influence in our life situations. We, we hasty Americans crave quick fixes, do we not? Many times at the expense of learning and maturing in more important matters. Preferring quick and, and fast can actually rob us of what God wants to do in us and through us. He didn't fix his wall quickly. Long story short, Nehemiah's king confirms his request to go back, and Nehemiah goes back home. He arrives in Jerusalem. He spends time examining the walls in chapter 2. He makes a plan, and then he enlists his team in chapter 2 and verse 17. Just listen to the word. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. A second lesson. And did you see what I did? No, you didn't, because I didn't either. I skipped right past what happened in chapter 1. Why? Because something needed fixed. Because we need to get this done. Because we are humans and we are smart and we can fix almost anything. Sometimes we even pretend to play God. So let's rewind. Even before asking permission to come home to Jerusalem, the Bible says that Nehemiah first sat down in chapter 1 and verse 4, and he wept, and he fasted, and he prayed, and not for a short time. In his prayer, beginning in verse 5, he acknowledges how great is his God. He confesses his own sin and the sin of the Israelites. He speaks God's word and he boldly pleads that God would do as he promised that he would do. He would bring them back home. So let's stop, church. Let's push the pause button. I know we hate pauses. Let's listen again to his prayer. Listen again to part of his prayer. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that he is praying before you day and night for your servants. Nehemiah meets with God before he meets with men. A great life lesson right here that we might consider implementing for the rest of our lives. Meet with God 
before you meet with others. And then Nehemiah proceeds with his plan in chapter 2. No sooner do they begin their work on the wall than someone arises out of the shadows and does what happens when any major change is initiated in most any situation in our lives, opposition. Opposition comes from those who can't have things their way. That never happens in the church. Now this is about human enemies this piece of the story, but you can always replace the characters here in this story with the one who always is opposing your plans. The ruler of the kingdom of darkness, Satan himself, whose plan is always to steal, to kill, or destroy. And I will add, to continue ruling in the lives of anyone of our children, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, who is right now not trusting in and following after Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible says this, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they ask? These were men from other lands nearby who would be threatened by this regional change that was going to happen. Several reasons are suggested, but the main reason for their opposition was that change was in order, and they didn't like it. They had no say or control over this change. Their positions of power and their status in the region was being altered. History also suggests that there was, there was some sort of bad blood between these lands and the Israelites. It might have also been that Sanballat, as the current governor of nearby Samaria, had some governing authority over Jerusalem after most of the Israelites were removed when the temple had been destroyed. Someone was stepping on his turf. Let me say, folks, whoever has said through the generations that our Bibles are outdated and irrelevant is themselves silly and outdated and irrelevant in their thinking. If you back up a few verses in chapter 2 and verse 10, you see what is also quite universal within our own human fallenness when change is on the horizon. But we're not sure what that change means for me. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, when Sanballat and Tobiah heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Wow. Great. But not so for these unholy men who did not want or care for what God would want. Neither did they care for God's people. They simply enjoyed their position and their power. Their loyalty and commitment was not to God. It was to man. And if not to other men, it was to themselves. Not much has changed. In either capacity, this really is another form of idolatry. 
What is idolatry? Idolatry is nothing more than replacing God with a blind, excessive devotion to something or someone else. Another little life lesson for us to consider. I have to constantly be asking myself regularly these questions. I give them to you as well. Who really owns my devotion? Who is it that really has my heart? Who owns my affections? What gets my best time? What matters most? Nehemiah begins to build. His strategy begins to unfold. He delegates responsibilities to different leaders who faithfully follow through. By the way, no one is qualified to lead who has not first learned to follow well. Another life lesson. Well, chapter 3 is is this beautiful exposition of the wall repair. Different people expressing their specific gifts and talents in specific places around that wall. It is really best seen here on this stage, right here at Central Community, every Sunday morning. Is it not? Think about it. Pastor Phil, submissive to his King Jesus, key leaders in Voices and players and tech crews all over this building waiting for their leader to lead and assign. Do you know that he's not even here today? And do you know that on most Sundays, if you were a guest, you wouldn't even know where he was because of how everything is delegated out as a unit, as a family working together to accomplish this task. Well, this is a grand size example right here in Nehemiah of our continual efforts here at Central Community Church to plug you all into certain places of service, all unified to one purpose, securing and building up the house of God to accomplish the mission of knowing Christ and then making him known. As with Nehemiah, It only happens as leaders are trusted and respected and empowered to do their jobs of leading as the church follows. Chapter 3 ends here in Nehemiah, and bam, a return visit from Sam Ballot and Tobiah, these squirrely enemies of the work who are now seeing that Nehemiah was actually serious and real change was happening before their eyes. First, the Bible says that these two guys mocked and they ridiculed the new work. Chapter 2, verse 19. What is this you are doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? But now, over in chapter 4, verse 1, Sam Ballot becomes angry and greatly incensed, the Bible says, almost as if someone is intruding on his turf. He forgets as we all can another life lesson or a crucial reminder that what God entrusts to each of us is not our own. It is not our possession. It is a stewardship. We are stewards. We are keepers. We are managers of God's property. 
we forget easily that we really own nothing. Tobiah, who is always at Sanballat's side whenever you read because no one opposes without an advocate by his side, makes a joke of this building effort. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, even if a fox climbed upon this wall, he would break down their wall of stones. This change was driving the opposition to build a coalition. Now we see in chapter 4 and verse 7 that Samballat's advocates have grown. Now he has added the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod as they're all angry. The Bible says that they all plotted together to come in and fight. Do you suppose that there were some secret meetings going on and some half-truths that were being shared? Sure there were, because there always are. Not much has changed. So they plotted to come to Jerusalem and fight and to stir up trouble. So Nehemiah, he does two things. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two things. He prays and he posts guards to meet the threat. He prays and he posts guards. It has been said that if you're caught in a flood and God sends you a boat, you can pray, but you better also row. So in the midst of great fatigue and doubt and fear that the enemy will have his way, Nehemiah reminds his people why they're there. We have to do that often. Chapter 4, verse 14, this is what he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. A powerful reminder to us, remember two things essentially. Remember what is at stake in your life, your prize gifts from God on loan, family, and homes, and your future, and your success, and your existence. And secondly, do not forget your great and your awesome God the one and only who made you for himself and who gave you a clear purpose for life and a sure hope for your future. And I hope and pray today that you have that sure hope, every one of you, for your future. Here in the Old Testament, God's people were guided and protected by his word through prophets and through priests and through kings. But then later on in history, one, the one and only came first as a lamb and then our king to secure our hope and our purpose and our future on the cross of Calvary. Christ alone, cornerstone, Weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storms. He is Lord. We just finished singing that line, but we're not done yet. The Israelites under Nehemiah did one more thing besides praying and posting guards. The Bible says they continued the work. 
They continued the work. They focused on moving on and did not allow the opposition to dominate their work. They kept building. One more scene in our story, the most important characteristic of great leadership. It is best exemplified by Nehemiah in chapter 6. Now we're there at chapter 6. The Bible says that Nehemiah receives a party invitation from his old threatened enemies. They had heard that the wall was almost complete and had one final idea to destroy the work. Sanballat and his crew plotted to bring harm to Nehemiah. But Nehemiah walks with God and he knows that this will not be a friendly party and so he refuses the invite. Chapter 6, verse 2, they were scheming to harm me, he writes. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it? and go down to you. Four times, four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. The story goes on with lies and games from the enemy and rumors to bring fear and confusion, but the wall was completed. The wall, eight feet thick, two and a half miles long, 40 feet high. This wall completed in 52 days. Think about that. As you can see in chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Why? Because everyone realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah is a man of integrity. I'm sure he made mistakes along the way and probably didn't deal with everything perfectly, with every conflict that arose, but he was a, a man whose life was true, it was consistent, it was genuine. People with integrity can sleep at night. People and leaders with integrity will have followers behind them to help accomplish the mission. So a few quick review questions to all of you. How are you leading right now in your life? Was it your choice to lead or did a situation call you out to become an influencer, a leader? Are there dogs on your porch whining because they don't want change? Have you learned from Nehemiah that because the Lord is your God, you can stop the race to fix everything and everyone and control everything and everyone. You can wait before him whom even the winds and the waves obey. Do you live with the reality that there is always a force of evil permitted by God to destroy any good thing? Your family, your success, your influence, whatever your mission might be, do you meet with God before you meet with others? Another lesson. Like Nehemiah first committed his mission to God, he listened to his word before creating a plan. Do your plans precede God?
And then about idols. Who really owns your devotion? Who has your heart? Who owns your affections? What gets your best time? Are you an owner of things? Or are you just a caretaker for God? Have you learned that anxiety comes when we clench our fists around things rather than hold them out in open hands as a trust from the owner? My kids, my stuff, my purpose, my time, my money, my health. And then a final question. We'll close with this. Are you leading alone? Are you leading alone? Nehemiah could have never pulled off his vision of restoring the power of God's presence in this holy place had he not entrusted the work to faithful others. If you skim over the text back in chapter 3, you actually come across in chapter 3 this, this literally exhausting list of who all did what to complete this project. It's kind of a boring read. And maybe this is silly, but I stopped a couple of weeks ago after reading and reading and reading through Nehemiah, and with a pencil, I circled in my Bible one phrase that I noticed kept coming up. In fact, I counted it out 20 times in 32 verses. The text repeats itself. Next to him. Next to him. After him. Next to them. Next to him. Some version of that whole next to. There was, there was this network. There was this community. There was this family connecting each piece of this massive project into a unit, well-led, inspired, energized, and faithful to one another in the task of helping the people to know God so they could make Him known. With the help of our God, with the help of our God, you and I today and in our futures, before Jesus returns, we have the privilege of influencing all the time, whether we know it or not. With the help of our God, Central Community Church has the privilege of continuing to influence thousands, thousands of lives right here in this town and around His world. Would you join me this morning in prayer? God, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for his life. Thank you for this powerful, powerful story filled with so many lessons for our life starting today and Monday and Tuesday as we walk through stormy times, as we face conflict, 
sometimes even in our own homes. Oh, save us, God, from from the neurotic need to fix and control, to wait on you, to not make plans that precede you, but to come and to weep and to fast and to pray and to listen and to be quiet until we hear your plan. Be with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. You want us to commit our lives to following after you and trusting you for our future. It is in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen. I want to share with you uh, uh, in closing a, a blessing as you leave this place that I learned as a little boy in my church way over in Pennsylvania taught by my pastor as a little child coming right out of a Hebrews. Just hear the words of this blessing as you leave. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every way, working in you, each one of you, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you.